0: Uh, My name's Johnny, one of the leaders of the church here, and today um, I'm continuing our series on the big story of the Bible, illustrated somewhat uh, behind me a second ago. Now, um, about 12, 13 weeks ago, uh, maybe slightly longer, we uh, set ourselves a challenge... Um, as a church that is to go through the entire Bible from cover uh, to cover uh, in 20 weeks that was the plan we want to look take a big zoom out look at the big story of scripture the grand narrative of God's amazing salvation plan for mankind okay and if you've been with us over Christmas and the new year you know that we'll have hit upon the main character it took a while for him to get there But he did, didn't he? Uh, It's great. So uh, we had Jesus, just (laughs) to be clear on who that was. (laughs) Jesus came. uh, He came into the world. uh, Emmanuel, God with us. And uh, he lived an amazing life. Uh, He died a, a brutal death. But then he rose again on the third day and he raised to life. Now, I don't know if you ran last week. Uh, but last week, we looked at that last one, the resurrection of Jesus. And I, I was over in the south, but I think it was the same here. We ended the, the, the sermon with all kind of whooping and cheering. Is that, is that right? Yeah, yeah. Everyone clapping and all hey! like this. Uh, you could be forgiven to th- for thinking, oh, right, it's the end. Done, fantastic, finished, as you clap at the end of something, uh, don't you? And then you could have sat down and gone, right, let's go back to the Bible. Wait a minute, there's a substantial chunk of this book still to go. I mean, what are we going to do now? I mean, you could see everything from now on, because we do have a few more talks to go, a little bit like the Lord of the Rings films. Put your hand up if you've seen the Lord of the Rings films, not, not the dodgy prequels, the, the real ones, okay? Right? Okay, Now um, I know it's 50-50, some of you have to go with me on this, but Lord of the Rings films, quite a substantial investment of time involved in those films, and uh, for me, emotion too, I don't know if any of you felt that So well. oh, I felt for Frodo and Aragorn and all that lot, they fought big spiders and things. But you get to the end of the film, you've spent hours in this film, and, and uh, Frodo, with a bit of help from Gollum, Sorry to those who haven't seen it. Ring goes in Mount Doom. Yay, job done. That's what they've been trying to do for the whole film. Get a ring into some, a volcano. So there you go. Saved you a lot of time, some of you. Okay. Um, <laughs> now, so if you're like me watching at the cinema, I was sitting there and you see the uh, ring going... <sighs> Done. Fantastic. Start getting my bags ready, coat on. Okay. Now, if any of you have seen the film, you know that's probably not a good idea because 45 minutes later, uh, the film actually wraps up. And uh, what happens then is a prolonged series of uh, kind of wrapping up loose ends of plot and basically hobbits hugging each other. Okay. If I remember, is that right? I mean, I remember that right? I think that's correct. Um, So... The rest of this series, then, in the big story, are we really now dealing with an extended sequence of the biblical equivalent of hobbit hugging? Is that what we're looking at now as we come into the spirit and the church? Is that the plan? Well, uh, I'll leave that for you to work out the answer to that question. (laughs) It's funny, because in a sense, Jesus brings an end to the story. He does. On the cross, it is finished. Very clear. It's a decisive action of Jesus. It's finished. The devil has been defeated. But there's another important sense, actually, that um, it's just the beginning. Andy pointed out last week, isn't it, it's made a point in the Gospels a number of times that the resurrection happened, on what day of the week was it? It's the first day of the week. Some days, the first day of the week, they keep saying it. What's the point? Actually, as Jesus came, it's a new beginning, actually. So really, in a sense, the story has only just uh, begun, it's just started. And today, we're now going to look, then, at what comes next. And that, what comes next, is the coming of the Holy Spirit. And uh, whether you take it as the end of the beginning of the story or the beginning of the end of the story, one thing is for sure, this is no hobbit hugging coming up. You'll be glad, I'm sure. Although you can hug as well if you like. Um, This is no gentle wrap-up. This is no afterthought. This is no wrapping up of loose ends. Now, if we miss the Spirit's part in the story, in a very important sense, we'll miss the whole point of the story put that a slightly different way, if we miss the Spirit's part in the story, we will miss our part in the story, because at this point, we start to enter the story. It's a fantastic thing. We haven't had it so far, but it's great. And so what we're going to do, please don't open your Bibles at this point to this, but we're going to land in Acts chapter 2 in a while, okay? Acts chapter 2 is when we're going to be eventually the story of the coming of the Spirit. Next week, I'm going to look at the birth of the church, which will be very closely related to this story, Uh, but that will be next time. But as so often, and particularly very good to do in the context of the big story approach, we're not going to get there for a bit. I want us to understand the context of the Spirit's coming. We, we sung great song to start, I Want to See You. I'm hoping that, that we will see uh, the Trinity, the third person of the Godhead, uh, in a new way today, Well eyes will be open, ah, oh, I thought the Spirit was this, actually there's more to it than actually a lot of the time we uh, show ourselves, and let's do that by going back to the start, okay, right, ready, back to the beginning, okay, the Bible, um, could I suppose, looking at the big story, lots of ways to look at it, it could be seen quite simplistically as being a, a story about a problem and the story about a solution to the problem, and this is a very simplistic way of looking at it. You could see the problem most clearly represented at the beginning of the Old Testament. It's in the rest, but most clearly there. And the solution at the beginning of the New Testament. Okay, it's problem and solution. So the Spirit's wrapped up in the solution, okay? But we need to go back to the problem, understand, fully understand the problem to see where the Spirit's coming from. So what's the problem? Well, basically God makes people and people mess it up. There we go. In short, that'll do. We probably need to go a little bit further than that. Adam and Eve sin, and the nature of their sin is quite clear. The temptation they fall for is the the serpent, the tempter comes, and his temptation is, if you eat that fruit, you will be just like God. That's what I said. If you eat the fruit, God told us not to eat the fruit. Yeah, but if you eat it, you'll be just like God. And they always say, ah, yeah. Because that is the heart of sin. They wanted to be like God. They didn't want God telling them what to do. They want to say, actually, God, we can do this ourselves. Thank you very much. We want to be God. And that was the nature of their sin. And so from that point, sin entered the world. And with it, it was like Adam and Eve opened the door to sin, said, oh, well, sin, we'll let you in. But unfortunately, they didn't realize sin had a plus one with him. Uh, He's going, oh, I'm coming in. Oh, if you met my friend Death. He'll be coming too. Here we go. Uh, and sin and death enter the world. And death comes with a whole caboodle of other stuff, uh, decay, disease, funerals. Those things come into the world for the first time. But also, uh, there's, uh, death is a shadow of a sp- physical death, is a shadow of a spiritual death that comes as well. Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden. And the garden is the place of communion with God. They're close friends with God in the garden. As they're kicked out, spiritual death is characterized by separation from God. That would be now, to a degree, but as Jesus makes very clear, when our lives end, if we're left in that state, still separated from God, it's final separation from God forever. Okay? Uh, Often, as Jesus referred to it, as hell. Forget the little red guys with the horns. Like separation from God, and that 's wrapped up in the death, in the punishment for sin in the Garden of Eden, okay so what 's the problem that 's the start of the problem. now, however, for many Christians, I think, and for me for a long time in my life i 've stopped there with the problem, and basically I've thought, okay, I get it. Sin is essentially then a spiritual problem. It, it is serious, it badly affects me. my sin affects me but that's about it. If I can fix or get God to fix the sin that affects me, it's going to be good for me, but actually, there's not a lot else to the problem. Basically, to put it really short, what's the problem of sin? Well, for me, it separates me from God and stops me going to heaven. That's the problem of sin. Now, again, like I said, still very serious personally to us as individuals but I guess it's viewed sin as a kind of contained thing something that my sin only need affect me and so I need a solution for me it doesn't necessarily spill out into the real world I think often Christians can then be a little bit confused when they look around and say well why am I causing or why is this person causing unhappiness to this person Or why is this relationship breaking down or why is uh why is my parenting struggling with this well actually our sin can spill out into all of those things It's not just a contained spiritual problem for the individual. But we can often fall into that thinking. The Genesis account, though, doesn't let us fall into that thinking. It gives the problem, in a sense, the problem of my sin stops me getting to heaven is the problem in miniature. It's a small version of the problem. The the Genesis account blows it up very quickly to full screen problem. And it does it, I think, uh, most clearly in Genesis chapter 11, a few chapters later. Basically, and we will turn to this, we've got a Bible, Genesis 11, one to nine. Human sin, death, comes separated from Eden. Human race, takes Adam and Eve's example, goes completely to pot, God judges them. As it's been said, God judges with death. He judges, he floods the world. But he says Noah, Noah's ancestors, Noah's kind of family, no better. And it comes to this place, Genesis 11, one to nine. Now, the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, Come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens, so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we'll be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. story that many of us may know, the story of the Tower of Babel, but it's a little bit of an odd one. So I think we need to ask, what on earth is going on here? Um, the first thing to notice um, is, in this story, you see the fall being replayed. I don't know if you notice that. If you've gone through the big story of the Old Testament, you see it over and over again. It's like the fall, pictures of the fall being replayed. We see it happening again here. What's the problem that these people have? What's the sin they commit? Well, it's exactly the same as the Garden of Eden. In the garden... Serpent comes, eat from the tree. No, we can't do that. You'll be like God. Oh, all right then. That sounds a good, good thing. We want to be like God. We want to be in charge. Here, what are they doing? Well, we want to make a name for ourselves. In fact, let's build a tower all the way to heaven. Now, I'm not convinced they had this next bit in mind, but the picture is very clear. It's it's like they want to get up to where God is, literally get there and go, right, we want to take our place on the throne. We're going to make a name for ourselves. We'll get to heaven. We'll take our seat. We'll do, finish the job we planned in Eden. It's exactly the same thing. It's the, the, the nature of all sin. Human beings wanting to be God, wanting to overthrow our creator. That's the sin here. So what's the punishment? The punishment seems slightly different. The punishment here is that the people of the world are scattered all over the whole earth and they're separated and divided from each other. That's what the the punishment seems to be. This is slightly mysterious and slightly puzzling how this happens. I don't think we're locked into a, a kind of view that says this all happened in one moment. But whatever we take from this passage of of how it happened, there are two elements to this. And one is their language is confused. Now, the problem I'd imagine of language confusion isn't just a problem of you need to make some new dictionaries or do some extra lessons in, in class. That's not the main problem. The main problem is that if language is confused, communication is confused, and communication is confused, then relationships are confused and broken. And so the other effect we see here is this, that the people are scattered. They're driven away from one another. The idea is this, with with easy channels of communications broken, misunderstandings arise. We all know this sort of stuff. In a small setting, it's just saying it happens in a larger setting as well. Misunderstandings arise, suspicions creep in, factions develop, cultural differences become significant problems. Cultural hostility is born. And uh, basically... From this point on, this is the context of the rest of the Old Testament. And if you notice that in the Old Testament, there's lots of fighting between different people. Why is that? Well, because the world is scattered and divided. As God rescues, goes to rescue humanity, he he has to choose one of the scattered nations. He can't get them all at once because they're everywhere. So he goes for Israel. But Israel work out their, their calling in a scattered, dividing world where everyone's at each other's throats. Dog eat dog. We wonder, why is so much violence? Why is there so much fighting? Why is even God involved in some of it? Well, God is stepping down into a real world, ruined by sin, and coming up with a real solution. No place for idealism here. No, sin scatters and divides. I don't think uh, it's, it needs to be dwelt on much, because it's so obvious, but this is the context we live in today. You could look at it in a whole load of different ways. I mean, most plainly, the cultural clash between Islam and Western liberalism is on the news all the time. But there's other things as well. Anti-immigration fear-mongering, same thing. Racial tensions bubbling over in America, same thing. Russian actions in the Ukraine, even Scottish independence last year. I'm not making a political point. Michael, just say no. it's all right. Uh, it's just the same thing. It's nations cutting against nations. We don't understand each other. We live in a world where cultural differences do not unite. They scatter and divide. But here's the thing. Do you know what the cause of that stuff is? Tower of Babel story, for all its mystery, makes it very, very clear. Why is this stuff on the news? Why is it happening? Why do people eat each other's throats? The cause is sin. Very simple. It's sin. As Christians... We don't need to scrabble around shocked by these things on the screen in, in the sense of shocked of like, what? how is this happening? No, we know why it's happening. Why are cultures divided against each other? It's a direct result of my sin and your sin and the sin of every human being who's ever lived before us. That's what it causes. That's what sin does. We want to be God. We want to make a name for ourselves. leads to personal pride. We soon realize you can't do it on your own, so what do you do? Well, you take pride in your gang, people who are like you. And the knee-jerk reaction is, well, then hostility towards anyone who's not like me. It's what sin does. Sin cannot be contained. It's not just a spiritual problem. The full-screen version of the problem is that human sin leads to people warring against God, but also to people warring against each other. And so we've got now the full-screen version of the problem, I think now we're ready to turn to the solution, okay? So problems there, not just spiritual. Sin messes things up across the whole world, to the ends of the world. We see it on our TV screens, here in the news all the time. So what's the solution then? We've heard it laid out over the last month or so, and uh, it all centers around, as I mentioned before, uh, one man, Jesus Christ. And Jesus comes and he leads a perfect life. He does only miracles, but almost the most miraculous thing, the most shocking thing. Pilate gets him before him and goes, I cannot see a fault in this man. And he didn't just mean legally. There's no fault in him. He didn't do anything wrong. And so he didn't deserve to die because the wages of sin is death. But he still paid the wages. He still died, died on the cross. But his death wasn't required as a payment for his sin, Instead, Jesus' death is effective as a payment for our sins. He dies in our place. He takes the penalty for our sin. And then, as we heard last week, to top it all off, he rises from the dead, resurrected. Okay, we'll cheered about that. Amazing thing. Jesus defeated sin and he's defeated sins plus one. He's defeated death as well. Jesus, through his death and resurrection, has dealt with the root problem of sin, and on the basis of his work, any of us can come and have our sins forgiven and eternal life with God secured, if we turn to him and we believe in him. You know, that's good stuff. You know, it was really good. You know, I'm not going to get you all to stand up and clap again. You can if you want, but like, no, please don't. I've got to get to the next slide. Anyway, um... It's good. It's wonderful. Look, w- w- You're going to find this out if you're new with us today. We, we as a church community, we, we like to sing a bit and a bit. It's a weird thing, people getting together and singing in, like, together. But the, why do we sing? Well, we sing because it's part of our celebration. What we're doing, there's a number of things we do and we worship God in a little bit, as you'll see. But we want to we celebrate that stuff, the stuff Jesus has done for us as individuals. We've experienced the joy of God plucking us out of the mess that we've made of our lives, forgiving us, setting us on a new path, a path that leads not to destruction, but to eternal life with Jesus. Sometimes, like last week, we get a bit excited. We might dance or do something like dancing around in the the singing, you know? We might whoop every now and again. I'm not making promises for today, you know, just saying sometimes it might happen. And all the time we recognize the truth of this story. We had, we, I had a problem and Jesus saved me. It was a massive problem and he saved me. And his solution works. And if you've never experienced the joy of that, I'd encourage you very simply, follow Jesus. He really does save. He saves from the guilt and the shame of the, the sin that we've done that separates us from God. Celebration is correct and it's right and fitting. But you know what? I really need to hear this. I need to make sure I communicate this correctly because you've got to hear what I'm not saying here. Celebration's right, but if we stop at celebration, we're in danger of doing the same thing to the solution as we did to the problem. We shrunk it down into miniature, we've limited what Jesus did and what God's rescue plan is in this story. There's a temptation to make the, the problem personal and spiritual only. And we can do exactly the same for the solution. Basically, what does it mean that Jesus died? Well, he died so I could be forgiven and I could get to heaven. It's wonderful, but it's too small. It's not the big picture. good news of Christianity is not God so loved me that he sent his son. It's God so loved the world that he sent his son. The salvation starts with us as individuals, of course it does, but it's meant to go way beyond that. God's solution is not just a solution to the personal problems that sin brings. It presents us with the solution to all the problems that sin brings, even to the ends of the earth. In other words, just to clarify, I want to confirm, make sure I say this well, what Jesus did is enough, it really is enough, and it cannot be added to, but it's not the end of the story. Let's see what happens next then. We got there eventually. I told you, if you've done this in Acts 2, you know, we're there. So Jesus rises again, sends some time with his disciples. He ascends to heaven. It's about two months. Uh, the disciples hang around, pray a bit, replace Judas, uh, and decide, keep out of trouble. Let's not get killed like Jesus did. Then suddenly this comes, Acts 2, verses 1 to 12. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, Because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, Aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked each other, what does this mean? And let's follow them and ask exactly the same question. What does this mean? It's utterly puzzling. It's like two puzzling passages today. What does it mean? Well, for many of us, we say, don't know the problem. It doesn't puzzle me. This is the coming of the Holy Spirit, Johnny. I know about this stuff. This is the Spirit. And you would be absolutely correct. So if that was you, gold star, well done. Pat yourself on the back. Very good. Um, Jesus had predicted this day would come, so it shouldn't have come uh, completely as a bolt out of the blue uh, for the disciples. He said, I'm going to leave. I'll send you my Spirit. In fact, even more than that, hundreds of years before in the Old Testament, they'd also predicted uh, that the Spirit would come. Um, Most clear prophecy, Joel 2, 28-29. I think it appears through the fog on the screen. Um, Joel two, twenty eight 28-29 says this, And afterward I will pour out my spirit on all people. It's hundreds of years before this day of Pentecost. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And this passage in Acts 2, uh, it's the start of this day. It says, on that day, in those days. Well, this is the start. Acts 2, that's what it is. That's what it means. And as I said, a lot of us here, we'd know this stuff. we Holy Spirit, you know, Johnny, if I was on Mastermind, if that thing still exists or anything, this could be my chosen subject. I could sit in the chair, I could answer stuff on this. I know the Holy Spirit, you know, the terminology, I've got it all. We, we want to be filled with the Spirit and we know we should walk by the Spirit and we are operating gifts of the Spirit, we want to grow in fruits of the Spirit. Many of us would say we're baptised in the Spirit. We've got a PhD in the Holy Spirit, some of us, almost, But you know what, whether you're familiar with the Holy Spirit or not, and perhaps maybe if you are very familiar, I think we need to go back often to the first time the Spirit came to make sure we don't miss the point somewhat about the Holy Spirit. Because I don't know if you've ever noticed this before, but the Pentecost account is presented in direct reference to another Old Testament story. I'm not trying to think, I'm not going to another one. We've already had it this morning. Pentecost is the reversal of Babel. That's what happens at Pentecost, and that's how it's framed by Luke, who writes it. Now, let's look at that. I'll tell you what I mean. Let's go through this passage. Let's see what's happening. If you were God, right, and you want to send your spirit, what do you think you'd have as being the first sign of the spirit's activity? I'm not going to have you calling out. That'd be silly, but just think about it. I, mean, I think, you know, healing would be top. Maybe resurrection actually would be quite high on my list. A few graves bursting open could be quite, quite a nice entrance into the world. Prophecy, God speaking in a new way, that would be good as well. And very clearly that's very important. But that's not the first sign of the Spirit's activity. The first sign is this thing called the gift of tongues, as called in the rest of the Bible. Now, step over here for a brief parenthesis at this point. Okay, As a church here at Church Central, we believe in the gift of tongues. We believe it's in the Bible, voila. We also believe it's here today. You might well hear tongues in the worship later. And we would see the gift of tongues from what the Bible says is as an unlearned heavenly language that God gives some people who follow him uh, to worship him. uh, Like more, uh, Well, I don't know what the more would be, but to worship him in some way. I think I can explain that better, actually. I think, personally speaking, coming before uh, infinite God can mean sometimes you're lost for words a bit. Do you ever get that? It's like, you're really good, really great, fantastic, excellent. More synonyms. (laughs) Um, And it's quite helpful to have, like, when my human vocabulary runs out, to be able to speak in a heavenly language to unburden the the things that are going on in my spirit. And basically, that's how the gift of tongues seems to function. Okay. Now, with that parenthesis there, let's go back to the story. This story, the gift of tongues, is that gift It's just very slightly different. There's an added dimension to this gift of tongues here, and it's that these guys—they kind of the disciples—they got. I guess the fires died down. They put the fire out on their hair by this point. Okay, maybe that's why really holy people have that kind of like little bald patch at the back. I I don't know. Imagining. Anyway, (laughs) they burst out onto the street, put their hair hair out and all that, and uh, they, they start speaking in these languages. These spirit-inspired languages, but who do they meet as they go out? Well, it says in verse uh, 5 that they meet Jews from every nation under heaven. I mean, Luke wrote this. Was he there with a massive map going, okay, this nation, tick, tick, tick. Oh, I've got them all. Yes, we've even got Madagascar down here. No, of course he wasn't. It's a colloquialism, okay? He's overstating his point, as we often do in language. His point's very clear. It's doing exactly the same thing as it did in Genesis 11. At Babel, people were scattered. It says, over the face of the whole earth. At Pentecost, we have a picture of Jews from every nation under heaven coming back together again. So what's happening. And what what happens when they come back together? Well, it says in verse 6, when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. At Babel, their language had been confused. They started understanding each other at the beginning of the story. By the end of the story, they had no idea what anyone else was saying. When the Spirit comes, what's the first thing that happens? He works in the disciples' language to bring about mutual understanding and to gather the nations together. That's the first thing the Spirit does. The end of Acts 2, 3,000 people who heard the message are added to the number, become Christians, baptised, uh, and join the church. Okay? You would assume a good number from these guys, from every nation over the whole earth. Sin scatters and divides. The gospel reaches to the ends of the earth and brings together, and that's the picture in Pentecost. It's spirit-filled Christians... In a spirit-filled church, we've got to be careful we don't get the wrong end of the stick when it comes to the spirit. The spirit is not only at home in Christian meetings. He's not made, and he's not, not, sorry, made. He wasn't made at all. He didn't come just to make our meetings more enjoyable or a little bit more edgy. He didn't. And actually, he didn't just come to meet Christians' emotional needs as an end in itself. No, no. The Spirit was given so that the victory Jesus had won wouldn't be restricted to a few, but could be taken to the ends of the earth. Could heal the rifts caused by sin. So that the, the, the effect, the curse of Babel could finally be lifted. Jesus puts it in a slightly blunter way, beginning at Acts, Acts 1 verse 8. Just before he goes up to heaven, he says to his disciples, you know guys, wait around for the Spirit. It's worth waiting. And they're like, well why? Why should we do that? And he tells them, Acts 1 8, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in their town, in Judea and Samaria, in their wider area and to the ends of the earth. Why is the Spirit given in this story? Spirit is given because the gospel is a big gospel. The message of Jesus is not just the answer to my personal problems and the spiritual state. It's the answer to the problems that we see on the news every single day. It's the answer to racism, to religious extremism, to deep-set cultural conflicts in the Balkans, in the Ukraine, in Africa. Yet yeah, it starts with individuals, but then through the power of the Spirit is to be carried by those individuals to the ends of the earth. Through the gospel, it will bring about the undoing not just of Eden, but also of Babel, because it's a big solution to a big problem. Now, I don't know how you feel about that. Just dump all that on you this morning and wander off to the next site. I think I'd probably say a bit more. I think there can be, it sounds all very motivational and nice, doesn't it? But there can be a little bit of a disconnect there between, yeah, yeah, okay, it'd be nice if that was the case. But how? How does this message that we speak, that I tell my friends around the corner, and they seem to scratch their head when I do it anyway, how can that fix the big problems that I see on the news every day? What's been really helpful to me in this lately is to, to be around people who actually go to the ends of the earth. That's quite, been quite handy in helping bridge that potential disconnect. Great having the Martin family Heather's here somewhere, can't find her, she's gone, ah, hello, great having your family yeah, here, Heather, uh, great just chatting to Andy, Andy often goes around, uh, and he's Andy and Jonathan in Oman at the moment, um, going to different countries, working in churches at the ends of, at the, ends of the earth, so to speak, Dave Devonish who came recently, similarly, works all around the world, and I was just talking to Andy the other day, and talk, talking about some of the churches in our family of churches, churches related to us in New Frontiers, in Turkey, we have churches, and I don't know if you know, but in Turkey, at the beginning of uh, the last century, the 20th century, uh, the Ottoman government, uh, under, uh, they had a policy where they decided they wanted to exterminate all Armenian people from the Ottoman Empire. And so uh, they tried to do that, and about a million, over a million Armenians were killed, which means that today, the Ottoman, gov- Ottoman Empire became Turkey, essentially. Uh, Armenians and Tur- Turks don't get on there's still deep-seated hatred hostility as you'd imagine go to our churches in turkey you've got armenians and turks next to each other worshiping god brothers and sisters in the ukraine exactly the same those churches now are scattered and divided in a sense but they're still together and you know what in those churches there are russians and there are ukrainians and they might even have different political views, but you know what? They're, in one sense, they're hand in hand, supporting each other, bringing, bringing the gospel still into that broken situation. South Russia, uh, Balkan, similar sort of situations going on. The gospel can fix these things. What the world can't do. If you One last time, Dave Devonish gave another spin on how, how does this happen? How can the gospel cure these big problems? It's an emotional story he told of two church leaders again in New Frontiers uh, who were k- had been killed in, in the things that go. in. I think they were both church leaders. Um, in these cultural hostilities, they died. They're given their lives. Well, how do how their family respond? How does the church respond to that? Well, he explained to us how the power of the gospel had so affected their families and the churches that they could say publicly, you're forgiven. You know what, those of you who did this, you're forgiven. The effect of that on the ground is incredible because it ends cycles of violence that the world can't fix. Because it's just, no, you took my eye, I'll take both your eyes. That's how it works in the world. The gospel finds another way to do it. Listen, when you think of the Spirit, when you think of the Holy Spirit in your head, you might sound like some picture of a dove or, I don't know, a fire or something like that. But then you probably might jump straight to speaking in tongues on a Sunday or uh, kind of singing in a little bit more of an enthusiastic manner. I'd encourage you to maybe put that back a little bit. When you think of the Spirit, think of those stories. Because that's why the Spirit was sent. That's why he came to do stuff like that. The Spirit comes to bring about a reversal of the real time consequences of sin that ravage our world. The gospel's small enough to deal with my state before God, but it's big enough to go to the ends of the earth. As we see this, I think we see one last thing I'm going to finish on today because I think one other thing becomes clear here. Now, again, I've just got to make sure I speak this clearly because it could come out the wrong way. It's very, very important to understand that our salvation comes completely from God. That's from Jesus alone, from God alone, okay? One of the key messages of the Old Testament I've banged on about it a few times in this thing, I think, is that we are powerless to save ourselves. We cannot do it. When we were still powerless, Jesus died for us. Now, Jesus did it. Jesus didn't save us in collaboration with Johnny Miller. you know, ministries. No, he didn't do that. He, he saved me despite Johnny Miller. okay? He saved you despite you. He just saved us despite us. And actually, if you think about it, in a sense, not in every sense, but in a sense, his earthly ministry followed a very similar pattern. His followers were with him, but largely, not always, but largely, they followed him and stood with their mouths wide open, watching him do the business. So Jesus would go and heal the sick and raise the dead. And they'd be, wow, can't we carry your bags, Jesus? Of course they... Gave out some fish every now and again and they even got a chance once or twice to do it themselves. But largely, they're following Jesus as Jesus does the stuff. But with the coming of the Spirit, you know, we've got to be clear on this. That changes. That situation is different. Jesus uh, says when the Spirit comes, he doesn't say, look, guys, wait around. Because wait till the Spirit comes. (laughs) I tell you what, watch the Spirit go. The Spirit is going to sort them all out. You just stand back. You watch them what does he say well the spirit comes and you will be my witnesses that's the point the onus now is turned on us the spirit is the spirit of jesus but it doesn't mean we're just there to watch as the spirit does his stuff and we carry his bags no this is an era dawning of a genuine working together like never before we're far from spectators the spirit provides the resources we go and do the business it's a fascinating way that misconceptions arise completely opposite to what the spirit is meant to do as regards the bible because actually sometimes you talk of the spirit and people see the holy spirit as an excuse for completely the opposite for passivity for not doing stuff and i'm sure you've probably done this before i know i've done this before but you'll be praying and you'll pray oh pray for a situation holy spirit move Holy Spirit act. You might even kind of say it loudly a few times when you're praying. Then, then you go, phew, thank goodness. Lucky the Holy Spirit's doing that because I certainly didn't want to. Great. <laughs> it's kind of funny to laugh at. I? I know I've done that loads of times. Pray for my friends. Holy Spirit, convict them of their sin. Holy Spirit, lead them to Jesus. Whew, good. I'll go and see him now. I'm expecting that will have happened. Great. Fantastic. You can come to church with me. I oh, no, what hasn't happened. I see. Pray for a nation. Holy Spirit, come over this nation. You know, like do all this stuff no that's not it at all listen the Holy Spirit can do what he wants and he can do and does often act independently of us he really does but when you look at the coming of the Spirit you've got to say that's not really the plan of how it was meant to be do you want to see the Spirit move well you move full of the Holy Spirit that's how it works you want to see the Spirit convict your friends of their sin and lead them to Jesus you talk to your friends about sin and Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit. You fear you want to pray for that nation? Praying is really important. But if God's put that nation in your heart, you know at some point you are going to have to physically connect with that nation, full of the Holy Spirit. That's how the big gospel works. Jesus defeats sin and death single-handedly. Then he gives those who accept his forgiveness a genuine role in spreading victory all around us. I think Jesus would say this, and I think he'd say this to us today. Hear this from, for, from your, uh, your saviour today. He'd say to us, look, you are saved. You're in. If you love me, you're in. Job done. Finished. I cleaned you up. I have fixed you. You're not perfect. You still make mistakes, but you're forgiven. You're in my family. You're accepted. And now I want to give you a genuine responsibility. The responsibility of fixing this broken world. Just I've rescued you from your sin, I want to send you to rescue many others. In your street, in your workplace, in your family. And he'd say to us, look at how I've reversed the consequences of sin in your life. Have a little think. It's not all plain sailing. But think about how I've reversed those harmful addictions. Those kind of selfish patterns of behavior guilt taken away, shame. You see, I've done that. Well, now I'm sending you to start reversing the consequences of sin that are still so obvious across planet Earth. Note the tone of Jesus. Jesus is not like the parent who's saying to the kid, look at this mess you made. I'll clean you up. Now you better go and fix it. Make it like it was before. Your fault, you sort it. That's not it at all. What Jesus is doing, he's a loving father that's saying, look, I've got a real job for you. I trust you. I've got a real purpose for you. I've got real responsibility for you. You're not just a problem that I needed to fix. You're an ambassador that I trust with my wonderful message of the gospel. I think it's something that we should take on. It's like, oh, this, is the, some Christians it's like this is the drawback of Christianity. I have to go out there. No, this is a privilege. This is a joy. It should hit us. We should get excited about this, I think. Maybe just... But you know what? I think what can outweigh the excitement, sometimes, and maybe why we don't, is that at the same time, it must happen, we realize as well, we just can't do it, God. It's too big for us. Far too weak. But the minute that thought comes in, God says this, that's why I sent my spirit. That's why he's here. He's all the resources you need. He's me, in your heart. I almost said it in your stomach. That would be a different thing, wouldn't it? anyway, (laughs) The Spirit gives us boldness. He gives us courage. He gives us power. He gives us all of those things to this broken world. But he doesn't just do that. He leads us into truth. He makes us more and more like Jesus. He brings us God's presence. He assures us we're really God's children. He helps us pray. He helps us encourage each other. But the point is this. Of all of that stuff, is that we go and fix the broken world that's there. And with the Spirit filling us and at our side, And with the work of Jesus finished, the amazing thing is we can do it. And one day that will be done. This is the big gospel. And with the Holy Spirit in us, we have a huge part to play.